Father, as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a joy for us to fellowship together, to share together, to be able to come into your presence before your very throne of grace and to invoke your presence here this morning. We know, Lord, that the word teaches us where two or three are gathered in your name that you are there. And so, Lord, we ask that your presence will be sensed by each of us today, that you'll give us spirits that are in accord with your spirit, that the will of God might be accomplished in our lives today, that your word will be like a flaming fire to our hearts, igniting our desires and our hopes and our ambitions in the cause of Christ. Lord, I thank you for each one here today and trust that you will minister to the individual needs that each uh, represents here this morning. And I pray that by your power, you will in, encourage us and empower us to serve you in a more effective manner. Lord, I ask that uh, in the service which is going on at this hour and throughout the Sunday School, your presence will be manifested in each class and that the Word of God will uh, touch lives to bring about your purpose. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to read from uh, Exodus chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Exodus 5, 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease their labors? So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they are making were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, that they may pay no attention to false words. The request that Moses has made of Pharaoh is a very reasonable request. We have to remember that Egypt was a land where they worshipped many gods. So, you know, religion was very well known to them. And Pharaoh himself was supposed to be the son of the sun god, and therefore an incarnation of deity himself. So the idea of a god requesting a people to go out and worship him, celebrate, make sacrifices, three days journey in the wilderness, was not really a strange request when it comes right down to the basic matters. And uh, several commentators mention the fact that if Pharaoh had had the slightest concern about the God of Israel, he would not have considered this strange at all. But obviously, 
even as he says in this passage, the God of Israel makes no difference to Pharaoh. He didn't even have an ounce of mercy or any concern relative to his people, that is, to the Israelites. To him, they were just chattel, there to do the heavy work of construction, making bricks and so forth. And what they wanted, what was threatening to them, what their concerns were, were of no concern to Pharaoh himself. His refusal to grant this reasonable request that they be allowed to go three days journey in the wilderness would ultimately result in his being forced to grant a much greater request and that would be that Israel would be freed and would be able to leave the land permanently which of course at this time was not even a part of the original request. As we noted at the end of class uh, last week we're looking here in the fifth chapter at the beginning of a confrontation which is not simply a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Now that's the physical confrontation. That's what we see. But we're looking at an eternal, a spiritual confrontation between the Lord of creation and the Lord of destruction. And as we have also noted, that needs to be drawn back to Ephesians, where we're told that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, so that we recognize that although we may have a particular physical encounter with someone, behind that is often a spiritual encounter. And uh, particularly as believers, we have to recognize that Satan is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom, whom he may devour. And we need to be on guard to, to resist him and to not be taken in or, or seduced by the ways of the world. I stopped class last time as we looked at the second verse because there were several things I wanted to say which we didn't have time to get into last week. But in the second verse, uh, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should pay any attention to him? Who is the Lord that I should pay any attention to him? Now, he being the son of, the, you know, in their theology, the son of Amun-Re, uh, of the great sun god, the uh, incarnation of Horus, if you will, he would supposedly be aware of all the divinities of the pantheon. And, of course, to him, Yahweh was not one. <laughs> he, he, of course, didn't consider the God of Israel to be of any importance. Obviously, Israel was an enslaved people, so their God couldn't be very strong if their God couldn't get him out of slavery. And so he had no time to listen to the voice of someone who represented a God that he didn't acknowledge. And to me, it's, I think, very, very parallel to our day. Why is it so many people in the United States as well as in many other countries of the world ignore God? They have no time for God at all. And I think it is at least in part that they refuse to believe that he even exists. Or if he does exist, that he has any authority in their lives. And that's, I really, I really think, a very important concept. It really comes down to the foundation of either the accepting or the rejecting of the Word of God. No matter how you cut it, it keeps coming back down to this book. Because that is God's revealed Word to man. The only way we can know God personally, the only way we can understand His authority and allow it to prevail in our lives, is through God's Word.
I'd like for us to turn to a passage I think we know pretty well, but uh, will help us to refresh our minds in the first chapter of Romans. Paul, of course, is uh, speaking concerning the religious or spiritual conditions of the first century when the Roman Empire was at its height and the Roman pantheon uh, absorbed virtually all of the gods of the conquered peoples. But it, it's applicable to any day in any age, certainly to the one we're speaking of here today, which was a millennium and a half prior to Paul's day, as well as does it apply to today. I'd like to read beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is a very profound passage. It gives us not only understanding of why the heathen are lost, but, but it gives us uh, a deep insight into even the uh, so-called Christianized world and to why the vast majority of people reject God. Because the, the very nature of God can be seen within human beings. One of the key words in this passage is in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, one of the ways to get God out of your life is to get rid of creation. So all you have to do is teach evolution. And all you teach is, of course, that mankind is just the, the high point. <laughs> I don't know if any of you ever read Frank and Ernest. It's a funny little strip. But every once in a while, if some really insightful uh, ideas come across in that one there, uh, having to do with that evolution, and it's really kind of pokes fun at it. But uh, if you believe that the human race is, is simply the apex of this long billions of years process, uh, from, a, from a primordial soup to, to our day, then there is no creation. And therefore, there's no God of creation. And therefore, we have no concern about being responsible to a God since there is no creation, no God of creation. And so this is, I think, a key concept today in destroying the faith or the possibility of faith for many, many people. They have to come to a position of not only understanding that God calls us to a personal relationship, but in order for that relationship to be real and for us to really understand the God of the Bible, we have to believe what it says here. And if over and over again the scripture talks about creation and the Lord of creation, and if Jesus Christ himself refers to Adam and Eve as real people, then we can't you know, cause them to become a, just representatives of a concept. 
you know, of, of the early evolution of the human race. We have to understand them that if Jesus talks about an Adam, he's talking about a single individual human being who was responsible at the beginning of time for the fall of the human race. That makes us, of course, as Christians in our modern world to be viewed maybe as simplistic, naive people. We're still living in the Victorian past. Well, so be it. There's, a, there's a, another key phrase in this passage. And it's a phrase to me that could almost be emblazoned in the sky over the intelligentsia of the modern world. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You may read on one of the arches at the University of California, Berkeley, that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And yet at that very university, they don't teach the author of truth. In fact, they ignore the author of truth. They ignore the truth himself, who is what? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if the truth is ignored, then what are we spreading? Foolishness. Really, ultimately, foolishness. I think that uh, as we look at verse 23, we understand the ultimate product, well, maybe not the ultimate, but a product along the way of the devolution of faith. I, I, I think I mentioned this last week. I, I get my contexts mixed up here, but most sociologists and anthropologists who are honest about the studies that have been made of, of ancient cultures will admit the fact that the further back they probe, the more and more they are discovering that the root religion was monotheistic. And that polytheism came later as a corruption of original monotheism. And so into the Egypt that Moses entered had already penetrated the polytheistic worship probably initiated by Nimrod and his compatriots uh, back in the 10th chapter of Genesis. And uh, this polytheistic religion had, had run amok in Egypt. And, and in Egypt, boy, I tell you, did they worship, uh, you know, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures? They sure did. They even worshiped the dung beetle, of all things. You go to uh, Luxor, and, and you go to one of the great temples there, and they have this large pond, which was part of the, you know, the beauty of the temple area. And they have this big pillar sticking up on top, and on top of it is the image of the dung beetle. You know, oh, exciting. <laughs> oh, hallowed dung beetle. And, and this is really exchanging the image of the corruptible God for the almost the lowest of creatures. But, but that's what happens to the human mind and the human heart when it, when it gives up the worship of the true God, when it no longer believes in the truth. And so what we're looking at here in Egypt is a confrontation between the truth and the lie. And that's the same confrontation that, that we face in America today. And, and as Christians, we have to be willing to, to, to put up with being considered second class or some kind of a subprimate for believing in these, these archaic ideas, you know, something that comes out of uh, Dark Age Europe or something, in many people's opinion. But God is very clear. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Their foolish hearts are darkened, the scripture says. 
in the third verse, we discover that of Exodus uh, 5, back in Exodus 5, the third verse, we see where Moses appeals to Pharaoh's sympathy. He says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and sword. <laughs> Would Pharaoh care if the God of Israel fell upon them with pestilence and sword? Only to the extent that it interfered with them, their being able to build his buildings. That's the only thing he cared about. So, Moses' attempt to appeal to Pharaoh's sympathy, of course, ran into a brick wall. He had no sympathy for Israel. In fact, Pharaoh became so disturbed by the situation that he retaliated against Moses, Aaron, and all of Israel. And he ordered the men in charge of the hierarchy over the enslaved people to require the Israelites to continue to make as many bricks as before, but now they had themselves to go out and gather the straw that would be mixed with the mud to, to make the bricks more cohesive, rather than supplying it to them, which had been done before. Why did he do this? Because he believed that since the Israelites were talking about going out into the deserts and having a festival and a sacrifice to God, they must not have enough to do. So I'll make it so they have plenty to do. In fact, I'll make them work so hard that they don't give a hoot about going into the wilderness and, and worship. And they won't listen to what he called false words. The words of Moses, false words. And that is exactly what the enemy seeks today to cause Americans and, and of course, others to, to view the word of God as false words. The words made up, and, and I don't know if you follow uh, some of these groups now that are analyzing the Bible, and of course we've all heard about the Jesus Committee or whatever they call it, that have been uh, trying to determine what in the New Testament or the Gospels Jesus really said, and did he say this or not? I mean, who are they to sit in judgment on the words of the God of creation? But uh, there are many who, who want us to believe that the Word of God is simply the concoction of a people who lived centuries after the events and are just simply putting down a myth that has come down to them by word of mouth only and has of course been all garbled and, and modified and then put down in a way that they felt it ought to be. That, for example, Christianity was created by the disciples or by others who said the disciples said this a century or two afterwards, if we accept that. Is true, then we have great reason, of course, to doubt the veracity of the faith that upon which, which has been built upon this book. But I think uh, we all recognize, I trust, that God is not impotent. He is able to give us his word and to keep it infallible. So that when we read it, we know we're receiving divine truth, no matter what the scholar might say. Because who is the scholar anyway? Is he God Almighty? In most cases, the scholar does not even believe in the truth of the word. And if we accept the words of unbelievers about the truth, we're, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And that's why the church is in so much trouble today. Verse 10 of Exodus 5. 
So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making bricks as previously? One of the things this passage teaches us is that the men and women of the Bible often found it difficult to obey God. Moses and Aaron obeyed God. They went to Egypt. They went to the Israelites. They showed them the signs. They, they gave them the word that Moses had received at the burning bush. The Israelites believed. They supported Israel, uh, Moses and Aaron as they went before Pharaoh. They had obeyed. They had believed. Is their obedience and their faith rewarded by great victory? Pharaoh just rolls over and plays dead and says, Sure, whatever you want. Not quite, right? Their immediate reward was to be worked harder, beaten, treated more harshly than ever before. The Israeli foremen were made to pay with stripes on their own bodies if their people didn't perform at the level required. I think the application to us today seems clear. Faith and obedience to God may make our lives more difficult. Have you ever noticed? In fact, we've read often, haven't we, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, as you read beyond the, the statements about Moses and, and Jacob and Abraham, you read on to the latter part of that 11th chapter, and you read a list of things that are kind of frightening, where we're told that some who followed God were stoned to death. Others were sawn in two. What a way to go. Others were killed with a sword, afflicted, ill-treated, and left destitute. Who were these people? Believers like you and I are today. We, fortunately, at this moment anyway, live in a less harsh scenario. Our faith and obedience probably won't lead us to being sawn in two. At least not yet. And hopefully never. But... It can lead to us losing friends. It can lead to us being defamed publicly. It can even cost us our job. And it has in many instances, especially in other countries. In fact, in some countries, it has cost the people their lives. It's cost them years in the Gulag archipelago. It has cost them disappearance as far as their friends and family are concerned and never being seen again. But for us, we might be labeled members of the lunatic religious fringe, you know, or, or bigots. You know, if we really believe that there is no other name given, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, we become, in effect, bigots. Because if we can't believe that you can, you know, if you honor Allah properly, you'll get there okay. If you honor Buddha or, you know, believe the Buddha, Buddhist way, 
properly, you know, you're faithful, you'll get there okay, or whatever. You know, America's a pluralist, plural, plural, you know, pluralistic society. And we're supposed to believe that all people are, you know, at least the, those who aren't criminals, are, are doing the right thing, hopefully. But we can't believe that if we're truly followers of Christ. But, of course, the word has a great deal of cheer uh, about all of this. <clears throat> we need to remember that these afflictions are of brief duration and we will be fully compensated and even rewarded. We've read this passage before. I'll just quote a portion of it from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For momentary light affliction is producing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Even the person who's in the process of dying of some horrible disease, or, or the person who's undergoing a tremendous persecution of some sort or oppression. Job, who, who went through difficulties probably more serious than anybody you know, that would be rated by God as momentary light affliction. And we would say, well, that's easy to say if you're not in it. But, but from God's perspective, it's momentary light affliction, which is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Of course, we don't see that comparison at this moment. But we have to believe. Now, God helped Israel to make it through this crisis. They, they, they do become stubborn and, and kind of renege here at a point. <clears throat> But God is faithful. He carries them through. And, and Israel will be greatly rewarded for following God. He's to bless them. Bless them beyond their wildest dreams. They will get out of Egypt. They will meet God at the base of Mount Sinai. And he'll give them his word, which will be written on tablets of stone. And then ultimately, in the form that uh, we read today, and he would carry them through to the promised land. So God will do for us if we're faithful. It's one of the key factors, of course, is steadfastness. And that's a term that doesn't uh, seem to catch in very many people's minds today. It seems that many are of the idea that uh, God is kind of hang loose. So, yeah. Let's, let's just take it easy as believers. And, you know, if I feel like it on Sunday morning, I'll go to church. If I don't, eh, no big deal. I'm still a Christian, right? If, if I don't go to a Bible study, uh, that's okay. I can study it on my own. I mean, all kinds of ways of viewing it as, as if uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it really does. God's not up there going, psst, oh, bad one for you, psst, bad one for you. Or, you know, collecting weights on one side as opposed to sin or you know good things on the other side kind of a purgatory approach but we are not becoming what God wants us to be if we don't put him first and his house first and his people first and and uh, these things in, in our minds it does make a difference and it does matter in 1st John chapter 2 I'd like to read a few verses from that passage 1 John 2, verse 3. By this we know him, 
By this we know that we have come to know him. If what? We keep his commandments. We have been so buffeted by easy believism in our world. And of course, you know, there's been an ongoing argument that's been going on for decades in this country in the theological realm. Having to do, uh, you know, whether uh, you have to make, whether Jesus being your Savior is sufficient or he has to also be Lord of your life for uh, you to really be a true believer. Well, to me, that's a semantic argument. If, uh, I mean, Jesus is Lord, period. And if we don't acknowledge that, I kind of doubt there's anything else there at all to begin with. But we, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That doesn't mean perfectly. It doesn't mean we don't fail. But in our heart is the desire to do his will. Of course, we can't do his commandments, so we don't know him, can we? The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandment, I didn't say this, the Bible says, is a liar. and The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Verse 17, And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So there really is a, a, a way by which... Uh, we demonstrate that we are true believers. And, and James, of course, talks a lot about this by obedience, by doing what he has commanded. And, you know, there's, there's great reason to wonder if the person who professes to know Christ but simply does not walk in the way of Christ and does not seem to be concerned about that is a part of God's kingdom at all in the first place. There, are, of course, there is, of course, the extreme represented by a few who, who believe that if any person at any time under any circumstance has ever cried out and said, Jesus, help me, I need you, that they're automatically born again at that moment, no matter whatever happens after that in their lives. Well, God knows, but these are his words. Of course, there's the other hand, where failure to heed God's word <clears throat> and obey results in true loss. And that's what Pharaoh is facing. Israel will recoup its losses. God will make good the losses to Israel. But in the case of Pharaoh and of Egypt, the destruction is not only temporal, it's eternal. It's eternal. Second chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 5. Romans 2.5 But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor in immortality, the reward is what? Eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, the reward is wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Now, it doesn't always seem like 
as we become born-again believers, that glory and honor and peace is our lot in life. But that glory and honor and peace is an eternal condition that he's talking about. We have it by promise. We have it by standing now. But we may not be experiencing it in, in the sense that we might like to experience it. Hopefully, we have the peace of God in our hearts if we're truly listening to him and obeying him. The glory and the honor part are in his eyes and someday will be revealed. But the peace is a reality we should have. I think that's one of the most powerful testimonies of true believers. In the midst of a storm, there's peace. Not the fear, not the, the chewing off the nails and the things that the world faces if a, if a job is lost, if, if cancer strikes or, or, or something uh, you know, calamitous seems to come. It's not that we just go through the li life stoically, but we have that deep foundation of peace that God has placed there. In the 15th verse of Exodus 5, we read, Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep, us, keep saying to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are being beaten. It is the fault of your own people. Hmm. But he said, You're lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work for you shall be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. And the foremen, the sons of Israel, saw that they were in trouble, because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron, as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is kind of a parallel to things, events which happen in the church even today. The Israeli, Israeli foremen were greatly distressed, and rightly so, because they were being beaten if the, if the bricks weren't being made to the right number. So they had a lot of reason to be distressed. And so they, they went to Pharaoh to appeal their situation. No, Pharaoh, great be your name. We're, we're having this problem. <laughs> And we don't understand why we're being made to produce the same number of bricks and also gather the straw when it was provided to us before. So Pharaoh informed them as to the reason for this new policy. They didn't know this. Pharaoh said, it's because you think, it's because you're lazy and you think you can just go out in the wilderness and, and hold a festival to your God. Obviously, you don't have enough to do. Boom. Their eyes were opened. <laughs> and as they left the meeting with Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron had been waiting to find out what the result of the appeal would be. And they intercepted these foremen and asked them what happened and what do you see? They receive a great deal of verbal abuse from their own people. You! have made a stink. I think they stuck their fingers right in Moses and Aaron's faces. You guys have made a stink in Pharaoh's nose. Therefore, they're going to work us to death. It's your fault. You did it. 
You're the one who is the cause of all this trouble and the great pain and anguish we are suffering. I think those words came to the ears of Moses and Aaron like a hammer blow. I mean, those foremen could have slugged them in the face and not made any more of an impact upon Moses and Aaron than those words. Moses and Aaron loved their people. Moses and Aaron were working for their freedom. Moses and Aaron had easily withstood Pharaoh's attacks and Pharaoh's words, but the words of their own people cut them to the very core of their being. This happens today. Often the greatest enemy of the leaders of the church are other supposed Christians who attack their own leadership or other leadership, verbally abuse them, publicly abuse them, and make the church stink in the eyes of all the world. We don't hang together. By the unity of the church, the world is to be blessed and the world is to receive the testimony. But of course, the church is badly disunited. And as a result, the world laughs. In many cases, rightly so. Moses and Aaron had their enthusiasm greatly withered here. You can imagine how you would stood before Pharaoh and thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And then your own people accuse you, bringing destruction. I mean, how much enthusiasm do you have left now? It's like the pastor standing in the pulpit and preaching what he feels is God's word and then having somebody in the congregation come up afterwards and say, that's your opinion. What do you know? Well, I got this other verse over here. You know, I mean, just whack, whack, whack. At this point, the tape equipment malfunctioned. About 10 minutes of Don's lesson was lost. Please continue. They get bound up sometimes, I think. So God is still in the process of building up Moses. We've all seen the little button, right? Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me or through with me or whatever those little letters were. And, and we kind of laugh, snicker, snicker. You know, that's the excuse that we, we put this button on us so that you know, we have a good excuse when we goof up. But, but really, that is true. And we need to look at one another and remember, God isn't finished with so-and-so yet. God's not finished with my wife or my husband or my kids or my parents or whatever. And, and therefore, we need to be patient and praying for one another. Because not a one of us sits in here this morning or stands up here perfect. Only by ultimate standing, but not in the daily living of our lives, are we perfect. Not even the people of that particular church persuasion who believe that are perfect, regardless of what they think. So what does God do? Does he reprimand Moses? Moses, I'm about finished with you here. You shape up or I'm going to ship you out. No, God is very, very patient with this man. With all of his frailties, with all of his failings, God is patient with him. God is building up his faith. God is making Moses into his man, the man who would be able to stand 
for 30 days on Mount Sinai and receive the word of God. Not, of course, by his worthiness, but one whose faith would be built to the point where he could stand there and receive God's word on the mountain that no one else save Joshua dare touch on pain of death. God is working in our lives just as he was in Moses' life. And he wants to build our patience and build our faith. And sometimes if we feel discouraged, do you know how to get encouraged? Well, one of the ways is to read God's book. It's very encouraging. God's word to Moses filled him with spiritual adrenaline. And we're going to read that next week as we go into this, the sixth chapter uh, and, and see what God's reply is. We're going to look at what God's reply. I mean, God gives Moses an extensive reply here. He doesn't say, Moses, I told you before, now beat it. He says, Moses, these are my words in response to your accusations and your plea and your questioning. And you'll notice as you read down through there, as we'll look at it, that God is in the process of assuring him and reassuring him that his word is true and he will bring it to pass. And, and, and that's why the word is so important to us. It reassures us that God's, what he has said to us is true and that he will bring it to pass. I mean, we live in a day and age when it looks like everything's literally going to hell in a handcart. And yet, God will bring it to pass in our lives, in the lives of his people, in the lives of those for whom we pray. And that's a key, as we've noted before, praying for each other. We need to do that because some can become very, very discouraged and downtrodden. And, and we need to uphold one another through prayer and uh, encouragement through the word of God. So... Next week, we're going to see what happens. Moses leaves the council of Pharaoh and goes to the council of the eternal God to spiritual headquarters and, and receives what we'll be looking at there in the sixth chapter of Exodus. And what is the response? Moses will go back to Pharaoh. I mean, I don't think he was planning to ever go back to Pharaoh after he'd been told off by the foreman. But now Moses is ready to go back to Pharaoh and he will stand fast before Pharaoh through the storms of which would rage, and Egypt will be destroyed.